We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Last week, we began a six-week series in the season of Lent called Becoming Like Jesus, and we started with the gospel, looking at Peter's words to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and we saw that the gospel was about a person, that is Jesus, in a position, he is Lord of all, for a purpose, he's bringing the forgiveness of sins, rescue and salvation, or the reconciliation and renewal of all things, that God is at work. And this gospel, this good news with Jesus as Lord demands a response. There is a summons from the Lord, the King himself, from Jesus through his spirit-empowered agents, the apostles, and then, of course, through us as the descendants in the apostolic church. The gospel is proclaimed. Jesus is summoning people all around the world to come to him in repentance and faith, to turn from their gods, their idols, their false ways of life, the counterfeit ways, and to, to grab on to him in belief and trust, knowing that he alone can give life. And so there's this response. The gospel is a summons, a royal summons to obedience to Jesus as king. And the church, those of us gathered here, we are just the gathering of people who have, for no inherent value or good in us, responded by the grace of God to this royal gospel summons. We've responded in repentance and letting go of other gods, letting go of control of our lives and in faith. And we now find ourselves as this community. And what matters, I should say, is that we do respond. For some of us, this response was like a lightning bolt. It was a moment. We have a testimony that, you know, is incredibly powerful. For others of us, it, it took a long time. It was more of what you might say a gradual process. God works through both of those means, by the way. What matters is that there is a response. And maybe for some of you here this morning, you're asking this question, well, who is Jesus? You're exploring that. And I just want to say, I pray that you'll come to a response to this summons to life, because it is a summons to life. It requires, again, laying down control in our lives, but it is a summons to come to the fullness of life in Jesus. The question then becomes, and this is our question for our time together this morning, is so as those who've had this response, what is our aim? What is our goal as those who have responded to the gospel summons, who have been transformed by Christ? What now? What are we to live for? What is to drive our lives? And for answering that question, looking at that question, we're going to dig into this account at the end of the gospel of Mark chapter 10, where Jesus encounters a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. You might think, well, why are we going here to answer that question? Well, I hope to show you as we start that Bartimaeus is a model disciple. And then secondly, we'll look at how Bartimaeus, uh, the way on which he follows Jesus, will unpack that. And then third, we'll look at how we might grow on that way with him and with all disciples. So first, Bartimaeus is a model then the way on which he follows Jesus, and then finally how we can walk on that way. So let's start with Bartimaeus as a model. He is a blind man who obviously has physical need, and almost always in the ancient world, and still often today, that physical impairment led to social ostracization as well as financial insecurity. 
not exactly a guy that you'd want to emulate, probably, in terms of his position in life. But here he is on the edge, on the outside. The first thing that we see about him is he knows his need. There's no hiding his need. He can't pretend to have it all together like a lot of us can. He is, his need is apparent and abundant, and Bartimaeus knows his need. This is the first way he's a model for us. Do we know our need? Do we know that we're no different from Bartimaeus? The second thing we see in Bartimaeus is he cries out to Jesus from faith. At the end, Jesus says, your faith has saved you or has made you well. He cries out from faith. And what does he cry? What is the cry of a genuine disciple? Verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, people didn't like the fact that this blind beggar on the road, just on the way out of Jericho, was trying to get the attention of this great teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they tried to hush him and keep him quiet. Bartimaeus knew so deeply his need, his desperate condition, that he did not mind the social consequences of crying out to Jesus in faith for mercy. And so after being told to be quiet, what do we read in verse 48? But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the cry of faith, by the way. It comes from a place of need, of knowing our desperate need. There is no entitlement. There's no claim upon Jesus here. He doesn't come with money to buy anything from Jesus. He doesn't come with any social capital to exchange with Jesus for a favor. He comes bankrupt empty, aware of his need, and he simply cries. And this is the cry of faith of every disciple. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy. Have mercy. Do we know this cry for mercy? What happens next? The third thing that we see is he's healed by Jesus. And and we have to acknowledge the amazing gift of Jesus as a king. Most of us would be pretty miserable lords over all. But it's amazing to see Jesus' response. We read in Isaiah that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out and a bruised reed he will not break. And here we see this man who is broken and bankrupt and empty, crying out in faith. He believes that Jesus has the power to heal. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't ignore the cry. Even when the people around him are trying to hush Bartimaeus and trying to usher Jesus by, perhaps so he doesn't even have to encounter this beggar on the road, Jesus stops in verse 49, and it says, he said to them, call him. We serve a king whose ear is always open to the broken and bankrupt cry for mercy. And we should marvel at this. The one who has the power to create the universe is so compassionate and gracious that his ears are always open. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel incredibly bankrupt, perhaps abandoned, alone, afraid, anxious. I want you to know that the Jesus that we worship at the center of our worship as the Christian church is a Jesus who will always hear the cry of someone from that place of brokenness for mercy. He will hear you. 
Jesus asks this blind man this really wonderful human question, what do you want me to do for you, he says. And this is so significant, not just in this encounter with Bartimaeus, but for this entire section, which begins in the middle of chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark uh, and ends here with this encounter with Bartimaeus. What does the man say? And it's obvious that he would say this. Rabbi, he says, let me recover my sight. This is the end. This is the final episode in a section of Mark's Gospel that is all about sight. It's all about seeing. And the reality is this section kicks off because the disciples don't see. They get on a boat with Jesus. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they say, what? Did we forget that we don't have any bread on the boat? That must be, Jesus must be upset with us for not having any bread. And then Jesus actually sort of shakes his head in exasperation in Mark 8. And he says, after they were discussing if they had bread, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he reminds them of feeding the 4,000 and feeding the 5,000 as if to say, I've got it, guys. I know what I'm doing. And then he says, he finishes, do you not yet understand? And then what happens next in Mark 8 is there's a blind man and Mark, the gospel writer, is very clearly sandwiching these, this section between these two healings of blind men. And the blind man that's healed in Mark 8, you might remember, Jesus touches his eyes and the man opens his eyes, but he doesn't see rightly. He says, I looked up, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And, the, and this blind man who's got one touch of Jesus is emblematic of the disciples who for these eight chapters have been walking with Jesus, observing his miracles that he's worked over and over. Je Jesus in Mark 1 through 8 is a miracle worker par excellence. And he's a teacher with, with great authority. And they're amazed at his teaching. But they don't yet see as they are to see. And so this blind man with one touch sees blurry as the disciples are seeing blurry. Even though Peter will confess Jesus in the next little section to be the Messiah, they don't yet see as they're supposed to see. And Jesus touches the blind man a second time. And then his sight is restored. And that begins this section in Mark 8 that moves all the way to this encounter and the climactic encounter with Bartimaeus in Mark 10, which is all about helping the disciples to come to see. It is a master class in discipleship, in teaching from the master himself. And we'll look at it more in a bit. But here we have Bartimaeus encountering Jesus, recovering his sight. And this also is a model that we encounter Jesus and we are healed. And then what does he do? The last verse of our section. And immediately he recovered his sight and what? And he followed him on the way. On the way. So significant. So let's pause for a moment. Bartimaeus, an outsider, a blind beggar, sitting on the side of the road, a nobody. Mark is brilliant at this. Mark always in his gospel holds up the outsider as the example. They put the insiders to shame. And here Bartimaeus, the model disciple, is held up for us to know our need, to cry out from faith for mercy from the king, to be healed and transformed, and having been healed and transformed, then to follow Jesus on the way. The outsider is the model. So what about the way, our second point? It says he followed him on the way. Where was Jesus going? Next section, chapter 11, begins with the triumphal entry. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die. 
He's going to Jerusalem to bear the cross, to take up his cross. At the beginning of this section in Mark chapter 8, just after Peter reveals that you are the Messiah, Jesus reveals that he's going to go die on a cross. And then he says to Peter after an exchange, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Bartimaeus' response to encountering Jesus and being transformed and being healed, recovering his sight, is to exactly fulfill or to obey this call of Jesus. And he follows him on the way. This is very clearly going on in this gospel. This is what this means at this point, that Bartimaeus, the, the one who can now see, is following Jesus on the way of the cross. What does it mean, this way of the cross? Jesus teaches about this way in this section from Mark 8 to Mark 10. And this is what he says. It's the way of self-denial. He must deny himself. It's a way of putting one's needs and desires to the side. It's a way of being last of all and servant of all. So in chapter 9, Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's a way of loving God first, of giving God our our. our our primary and exclusive allegiance, such that we are willing, if God asks, to let go of anything else in our lives, including our lives themselves, to walk in fidelity to him. So with the rich young ruler in Mark 10, part of this section, Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, one thing you lack, young man, go and sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. Taking up our cross means a willingness to walk with God wherever God leads and to give up anything that God asks. And it is this way of service, of taking the lowest place right before our text in verse 46, verses 42 through 44. Jesus teaches his disciples this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He teaches them about the cross, the way of the cross, a way of self-emptying, self-denial, sacrifice, service. And then what? He doesn't just teach. He models Immediately after Bartimaeus starts to follow him on the way, Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes to a Roman cross and dies on that cross in obedience to his father and in great love for us. The way of the cross is fundamentally the way of love. Augustine said, nailed to the cross, Jesus was walking in the way, the way of charity. The cross is the greatest expression of Jesus' love for God and love for neighbor, which is the summation of the law. Remember? They asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, the first is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. This is the will of God for you and for me, revealed all the way back to Moses on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. This is the summary of the law. And here Jesus is fulfilling that law, the will of God for humanity, by going to the cross as the expression of his deep love for God 
And where do we see that coming out? The love for God is expressed in yieldedness to him, in surrender to him, in letting go of control of our lives. And so where do we see that in Jesus paradigmatically? In the Garden of Gethsemane, which will come in Mark 14. He's wrestling with the Father, wrestling with the the reality of his vocation, which is to go to the cross. And he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That is the highest expression of love. It is to yield to the Father's will, not out of some kind of like, this is, you know, this is what I got to do to earn it. This is coming out of the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, an eternal relationship of love. The depth of love between the Father and the Son leads the Son to yield to the Father. It's a voluntary, it's a yielding out of love of his will to, to, to the Father's. That is, this is, the cross is love for God on full display from the Son who represents humanity. The cross is also love for neighbor. You remember, don't you, what Jesus says in the upper room discourse in John 15? You are to love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Or in the verse right before our text, before he encounters Bartimaeus, for the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the greatest expression of love for neighbor one could ever have is the cross. It's Jesus' self-emptying for our good and benefit. This love for neighbor is not love understood as sentimental feeling or as often defined in our culture as mere tolerance. Rather, this is love as God has defined it. It is words, thoughts, and actions that pursue the good of others, a good as determined by the truth of God and not by often our broken subjective understanding. It is the pursuit of the good of others, oftentimes at great cost to oneself. And here Jesus shows us the greatest cost that could be paid. When Jesus says, follow me, when he invites us, as we come under his summons to repentance and faith, and then he says, follow me, he's saying, follow me to the cross, follow me on the way of love, follow me to a life of sacrifice. This is where I'm asking you to come. And that's where Bartimaeus is going. Healed, recovered his sight. He follows him on the way. This is our aim. It is to become like Jesus, which means to take up the way of the cross, which means to take up the way of love, a love that is defined by the God of heaven and earth. I want to say that this call is not an invitation to masochism, or to self-abnegation fueled by fear and weakness and insecurity in our sense of who we are. Admittedly, all of us in sin struggle with these things. They're real struggles. And I long for us as a church to be a place that recognizes these struggles that we have with being healthy and whole and to be a compassionate and gracious place that come alongside one another in our weaknesses and insecurities to know the depth of the love of God for us in Christ. We are indeed called to that. But I want you to recognize that this call to take up the cross is a call, actually, this call to love arises out of a place of fullness, out of a robust sense of strength and life that comes from the gift of God to us through the gospel. Rising up from our despair, rising up out of our unhealth, rising up from our fears, rising up out of our failures. Think of how Bartimaeus knew this. He rose up to meet Jesus. And then knowing our identity that's been given to us in the gospel, knowing that we have this strength that God provides, then to live into the fullness of this love that God calls us to as his creatures. 
out of fullness and strength and our, our strong sense of identity as we pursue the good of others, using all that God has given to us in that robust sense of health, not for our own gain, not for our own advancement, but for his and for the sake of those around us. This is what we are privileged to be called to as the people of God. It's showing up fully as our full selves and pouring our life out for the sake of others. This is what Jesus means when he says to deny yourself, to become last, to become a servant. It is to deploy your life for the sake of the people around you. It's this that Jesus embodies in the cross, and it's to this way of life that Jesus calls us. And the entire New Testament calls us this way as well. Consider Romans, 15, Romans 13, Paul says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just talked about love as a fulfillment of the law. He calls us to put on Jesus. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, gave himself up for us. Become like Jesus. Walk on the way of the cross. Walk on the way of love. It means you're to become actually like God, not in his incommunicable attributes like omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. We're not called to, to become like him in this way, but in righteousness and holiness, a life of justice and love under the rule of Jesus as king as we share in that rule as the image bearers of God and creation. We were actually made for this, though we rejected it. Jesus, the last Adam, shows us this way to being truly human. He takes the throne and restores us to our created purpose. In his book, maybe 15 years ago, Graham Tomlin, a, a theologian, Reformation scholar in England, um, the book is called Spiritual Fitness. He wrote this. He said, for Athanasius, as for many other Christians, Athanasius was a church father in the fourth century. The whole point of God becoming human was that we might be reformed into the likeness of God so that we might become images of God and imitators of Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. We are to become like him on this pathway of love and the cross. So what's the key to following on this way? Our family recently went on a trip and we were hiking in some mountains and there happened to be some caves in these mountains. Now I prefer to be on top of mountains and not inside of them, I will say. Maybe some of you are the other way around, but we went in a cave together and we had our sort of, we weren't really prepared, but we were somewhat prepared. We did have a few headlamps and flashlights and we got deep into one of these caves and then I said, why don't we all turn off our lights? And if you've ever done this, it's just unbelievable. And I suppose those who are blind among us know this as their daily experience. But when it just becomes, there's, it's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of you and there is no way to know how to navigate where you are. And this whole three-chapter section is about sight. So as we think lastly about how to walk on this way, I want to put it in the frame of recovering our sight. But ask, what is it that we are to see? Four things. We are to see his love. And I start here, and we should always start here. There will be no progress in the way of love on the way of the cross. There will be no progress in the imitation of our Savior Jesus in becoming truly human again if we are not motivated and moved by the depth of his love for us. Think about Bartimaeus. Think about it. 
He gets up. He goes to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? I want to recover my sight. Jesus gives him his sight back. And he gladly follows Jesus on his way to the cross. Why wouldn't he? Everything had been changed for him. Everything had been healed. Everything had been done. And, and you might say, and go, well, that hasn't been done for me. I still struggle with this or that or the other thing. But the reality is that in the cross and what God has done for you on the cross, that is so significant and so central and so much more, uh, more defining and grounding than any other need that you might have as he's dealt with the reality of our sin in a deep way, in a conclusive way, in a comprehensive way at the cross, that we are liberated and we are no different than Bartimaeus when we come to Jesus for mercy and we find that he changes us on the inside. And it's seeing his great love that is what moves us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls or compels us because one died for all. So that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, no longer to exalt ourselves or to put ourselves on top, but we might live for him who for their sakes died and rose again. Or for our sake. It's the love of Christ that controls and compels us. Or as John says in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. So we see his love. There will be no discretionary effort. There will be no intentionality. There will be no movement along this path to maturity if there is not always, not just one time, but always a contemplation and recognition of the amazing love of God for us in Jesus. And of the fact that everything that we are is owed to him. That is our position. If we are in Christ, that is our position. Everything has changed. I once was blind, but now I see. Luther said, it is not imitation that makes sons. It is adoption that makes imitators. It is not imitation. It's not because we become like Jesus that we become part of the family. Rather, it's the grace and love of God in Christ that makes us part of his family, which then makes us imitators. The lavish love of God. Behold, see what great love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. Do you see his love for you? The second thing that we need to see is we need to see the lie. And here's what I mean. These three chapters, the disciples are so unable to see. It's comical, actually, in this gospel. Three times after the revelation that you are the Messiah, this great confession of Peter in Mark chapter 8. Bear with me. I think this is helpful to see in the narrative of Mark's gospel. Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, okay, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to go die on a Roman cross. Peter says, Jesus, that's crazy. He pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him. Do you remember this in Mark 8? Then Jesus starts to rebuke him back and says, no, 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 Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you have set your eyes not on the things, or on the things of man, not on the things of God. You've got this backwards. The kingdom of God is upside down. It doesn't make sense according to the ways of the world. I'm not supposed to go and conquer my enemies. I'm going to die. I'm going to love because it's love alone that will transform this world and bring about the kingdom that I've come to bring. So they don't get it there. So he says, come, come with me to the cross. Second time that Jesus reveals that his vocation as Messiah is to go to the cross in chapter 9, right after he makes that revelation, we find in, in chapter 9 that as they're walking along the road, the disciples are arguing amongst one another. And what are they arguing about? They are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. That must have been an awkward conversation, honestly. 
I mean, we might have that argument, but most of us keep it on the inside. They were actually just talking about it. You know, who's better? I, I am. I don't know what they did. Jesus, imagine Jesus in the middle of his master class. His disciples are arguing about which one is the greatest. They believe the lie, don't they? And so what does Jesus do? He takes a little child, has no honor, no position, no status, and says, you must welcome this little child. And then he says, if you want to be first, you must be slave of all, last of all, servant of all. And then the third time that Jesus reveals that he's going to go to a Roman cross and die, this is now in chapter 10, right after he makes this revelation about his vocation to take up the way of the cross, the way of love, what happens next? John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and they're like, hey, let's make a deal. When you get into your kingdom, just let us sit at your right and at your left. <laughs> and when the other 10 hear about it, we learn that they're indignant. They're upset. They want those places too. And so Jesus then teaches them about the authority that, that, you know, the Gentiles exercise authority. And he says, no, 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 not so with you. You're to become a servant. And then he finishes with that great line, for the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I'm trying to say is the, the, the disciples, the preeminent insiders here, not like Bartimaeus, the preeminent outsider, they don't get it. They have fallen under sway of the lie, which the lie is that in order to be alive, you have to be better than everybody else. You have to get to the top of whatever limited place that there is in our world for honor and praise and glory. You have to do your part to get to that place so that you can really be somebody because unless you're better than your neighbor, you're not really there. And that is the lie that runs so deep in our culture today, in all of our hearts too. We're tempted to believe the lie. So we need not only to see his love, we need to see the lie and have it exposed. That self-indulgence, self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-honor is not the way to life. It's actually the opposite. So Jesus can say at the beginning of this three-chapter section, for whoever, remember this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will exalt himself and bring, bring everything to get to the top, he'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, whoever follows the way of the cross, whoever pours his life out in love, as I'm about to go do at the cross, he will save it. What good is it for a man if he gains the whole world, if he gets to the very top, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being excellent at what you do and having success in what you do. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I think that can be an, a wonderful way for us to praise God with what he's given to us as the one with five talents and these, these, these servants did. But it's all about what it's for. Is it for me? Is it that I could be exalted? Or is it to exalt my king? Is it to help lift up others around me? Is it to use anything, any advantage, anything that God has given me in order that others around me might be built up, edified, strengthened, have their needs met? We need to see the lie. There's this one moment in 1 Timothy 5 that I think is profound, verse 6. It's actually buried in this teaching to the widows in 1 Timothy 5, but it says this, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That's kind of close to home. The lie is that you turn everything in on yourself, that you put your needs first, 
And I want to caution us, there is even a way of pursuing Christ that can do this. I am not for a moment suggesting that we're not to think about health and taking care of ourselves and resting. These are are godly and important things to walk with Jesus for the long haul and the marathon that is the Christian life. We need this. But this can be distorted into a a kind of worldly self-focus that actually doesn't ultimately bring life, but brings its opposite. We need to see power. You might be thinking, well, I'm supposed to become like Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure I can even get my work done this week. Um, We can't make a single step on the way of the cross and the way of love apart from the intervention, empowerment, and cooperation of the grace and power of God in us. John Owen says this in his work on the glory of Christ. He says, there is no one gracious acting of soul in any one believer at any time in the whole world, either in opposition to sin or the performance of duty, but that it is influenced and under the guidance of the kingly power of Christ. To walk on this road of the cross requires the power of Jesus. Thanks be to God given to us through the Holy Spirit. There is no one in this room who can say, look, I got this. Yeah, I'm supposed to become like Jesus. I'll go take care of that this week. No, no, no. We hear this and we fall on our face. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I know the propensity of my heart to be turned inward upon itself. I know how much I fall into the darkness of the world around me. I know how much I need you. And this call actually in the dependence upon Jesus himself, apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. This call should lead us to this place of radical dependence upon the Lord, to come to his word, to be gathered in the fellowship of believers, to pray, to seek him, because we know that apart from him, there is no progress on the way of life, the way of love, the way of the cross. And then I would lastly say to see, and I was just getting to this, but to see the invitation and the provision of God to grow in the way of love. In this vertical dimension of the the gift of worship, of gathering with the people of God to to put Jesus on the throne week after week, to do that throughout our weeks. But this is a climactic moment of the Christian life as we gather uh, as his people. This is a gift God has given us, the gift of of deepening instruction or catechesis, of growing deeper in understanding his word. He's given us minds. He's spoken to us. Wouldn't Wouldn't we treasure his word? Isn't it more valuable, more precious to us than gold or silver? To deepen in this. These are gifts that God has given to enable us to grow on this way. And then there are these horizontal dimensions. And we'll explore these in the weeks to come. But the gift of community, of one another, of believers who, who actually have this same amazing, uh, unbelievable call to live out, the, to become like Jesus in their lives. But they're, we're called to do it together, to share in each other's burdens, to pray for one another, to come alongside one another. As many are coming alongside the Beaver family right now in their time of trial. We desperately need this community. And then we've been called also to share in the proclamation of this royal summons around the world. And as we go on that mission together with Christ by the power of his spirit, we grow in our love for the neighbors around us who don't yet know this power and this love. There's abundant provision from God to grow in this way. So as we close, just two basic questions again. What is the gospel Jesus is Lord. 
I hope you can just kind of say that off the, Jesus is Lord of all. And what is our aim? I want you to be clear on this when you walk out. What is our aim? I want you to remember Bartimaeus, the model disciple. Our aim is to become like Jesus by following him on the way. The way of the cross, which is the way of love. Love of God and love of neighbor. And this brings us life. And it brings glory to the God whose image we reflect into the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your great love. Thank you for this story of a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, with nowhere to go, with no prospects, to become a model disciple for us. Thank you for his cry. Lord, we pray that you would help us to once again see our need. And where we have forgotten it, please remind us of it again. We pray, Lord, that you would move us to cry out to you for mercy. And we do. Have mercy on us. That we might grow on this way of life for the glory and honor of your name. God, grow us, we pray. Thank you for your power to heal, to save, to rescue, to reconcile, to renew. What a joy it is and what a privilege it is to be children of the Father, brothers and sisters of our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.